and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I am your host, Alex Andreu, newly vaccinated and slightly feverish. <laughs> We've come a long way these last 12 months, despite barely leaving the house. A year ago exactly, when we were still Romaniacs, which arguably we always will be, what? we started recording this podcast remotely. Did any of us foresee it would last a whole year? I did, obviously. <laughs> With me this week is Mini Rahman, Campaigns and Comms Director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Mini. Hi, Alex. Mini, this week, uh, Twitter founder Jack Dorsey sold his first ever tweet, well, the first ever tweet, for almost three million US dollars. He has donated the proceeds to the Africa Response Branch of Charity Give Directly, which provides COVID relief. Is this a timely reminder that while rich countries engage in unseemly vaccine squabbles, there are entire continents in which barely any vulnerable people have been vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, vaccine nationalism is a very real problem. I, I saw quite an incredible map the other day which showed how the majority of the global south is nowhere near vaccinating even a fraction of their populations. And obviously, Boris Johnson told the 1922 committee that the success of the UK's vaccination programme was because of capitalism and greed. And he's, he's actually not wrong there. <laughs> the difference is that I don't think that's something we should be proud of, especially not when the pandemic by definition, is global and therefore needs um, global solutions. You know, our vaccine strategy, while it is amazing for people in the UK, is is incredibly short-sighted globally. Mm. Which of your tweets would you sell? I mean, I honestly can't imagine that any of my tweets are that <laughs> valuable. I have no idea what the market value of my tweets are, and I also don't know how you go about selling one. Um, but I'd probably happily sell any tweet that speaks to how much I dislike the current government, and I'd say they're the best value for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because they're evergreen, aren't they? Naomi um, Smith is the chief executive of Best for Britain. Her first tweet reads, no, wondering, no. wondering whether Twitter is just a vanity project or actually worthwhile. Hello, Naomi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God it was a tweet and not Facebook. Naomi, arguably one should have guessed that our nightmarish return to the 50s would come complete with its own Suez crisis. Giant container ship ever given has run aground and blocked the canal. What's the latest? Well, I'm very much hoping by the time most people listen to this on Friday, the latest will be that it's all cleared and everything's back to normal. Uh, but at the time of recording, it is still pretty stuck and gridlocked there. <laughs> uh, pr pretty worrying. From satellite images, it looks like my dad trying to parallel park a massive <laughs> Simca that he got <laughs> in the 80s. How might this affect already strained freight channels and might it have a knock-on effect on even vaccine supplies? So, I mean, I think this is the interesting thing. And what, I mean, I've been obsessed, by the way, watching this thing over the last sort of 12 hours or so. Um, but, but the situation is a great reminder of the fragility of global supply chains and potentially, I think, of capitalism itself. 
Because the, the nature of the structures of capitalism, um, at least that we're, we're often told by market fundamentalists, is that it is so amazingly adaptable. But actually, its efficiencies mostly relate to costs and pricing. And it's much more centralized and consequently easily disrupted than its main proponents have us believe. It isn't always this resilient, self-healing system. Mm. It's a system that is just actually pretty efficient at allocating uh, based on prices. And all it takes is a, a fire, an earthquake or other single disaster at a single plant responsible for x percent of the world's production of a thing to then knock out global supplies in an instant um so i think in the context of so-called global britain and what it's meant to be doing is you know less trade with our nearest neighbors and more with our trade partners in indochina the fragility of these systems i think becomes even more pronounced for us Mm. um, especially because those trade routes predominantly go via the suez canal um, and there really is a reason that, that trade declines the distance. You, you asked about vaccine supplies. I've not answered that bit yet, Alex. Sorry. It's an important point that you're making. I interviewed an economist recently, and she was saying that we've basically sacrificed just in case for just in, in time, time. Yeah. meaning yeah. we've sacrificed resilience for efficiency. Absolutely. And, and when you look at things like computer chips, they're a really great example of this because they're totally dominated um, in terms of their production by just one or two facilities, one of which is in Taiwan, and therefore at the risk of you know retaliatory China and, and, and all of the geopolitical issues you've got there. But on, on the issue of vaccine supply, I don't yet know what the Evergreen or whatever it's called. What's it called? It's not the Evergreen. It's called the Evergiven. Um, yes. is actually carrying uh, or any of the other affected vessels because of course this is now you know for the last however long tw- 12 more hours has been backed up all the way around now yeah. uh, the whole of Saudi Arabia uh, and, and beyond we don't really know what they're carrying yet but doubtless there will be medical equipment on them if if not the doses themselves because remember that to administer a vaccine you require vials you require silica you require needles yeah the seals um, the needles exactly. everything yeah. and, and and i think compounding all of this is the lack of air transport because a huge amount of freight that would ordinarily be in the holds of passenger planes is now, of course, being rerouted via sea because of human travel mm. restrictions. So today the disruption could be medicines, tomorrow it could be food. And we just need to think really carefully about our security as a nation as we try to go it alone without our single market allies, whether that's food security, medical security, trade security, etc. Mm. Our guest this week is a multi-instrumentalist and composer whose career has spanned most musical genres. He's also a good egg and our sort of people. His new album, Immigrants, is a spiritual sequel to his 1999 record, Beyond Skin, in more ways than one. Immigrants is an evocative intertwining of folk music from around the world, classical jazz and drum and bass. It's indescribable. You actually have to hear it. He says the album is based on the philosophy that every newborn child is of equal value, regardless of who they are or where they come from, not if Pretty Patel has anything to do with it. Nitin Soni, welcome to your inaugural Oh God, What Now? (laughs) Hi, lovely to be here. Thank you very much. What has it been like as a performing musician trapped indoors for a year? How have you coped with cancelled gigs and remote recordings and the like? It's been frustrating, but I think at the same time it's been about adapting as well. I mean, I'm, I'm very um, 
honoured to be the uh, chair of the PRS Foundation as well, who actually are supporting, um, they're a charity supporting new talent. Um, and mm. at the moment, they have a programme called Power Up, which is um, particularly supporting black artists and platforming them. We, we have a kind of really strong agenda of inclusion. And, um, and so last year, I kind of put together a show for them uh, to raise money for the Hardship Fund to help out musicians who were struggling. And then I did some music for the Royal Albert Hall at home uh, charity as well and a few other things. But um, so I, I kept busy. And then also I've been obviously making this album. And on top of that, I've been writing film scores. So I've kind of kept myself doing things. But it's, mm. it's just been more of a, a strange time and very sad. I mean, it's very difficult to not wake up in the morning and think of, you know, all this incredible loss of life, which I think there's so many people who try to distract us from feeling, you know, and, and recognizing that this is, it's, there's almost a dehumanization, desensitization process that goes on every day. And it's, um, it's, you know, it's very important to to bear in mind that, that we must think of those people every day. I, I think we have an obligation as human beings to think of the people we've lost. Over 135,000, according to today's ONS figures. That's uh, Wednesday. Yeah, that's um, very sad. One of your recent outputs, uh, just before COVID came along and erased all history, was a Brexit adaptation of Bohemian Rhapsody, <laughs> sung by Golem, Dressed as Theresa May, voiced by Andy Serkis, the actual Andy Serkis. Um, How did this idea materialise and how high were you all when it did? (laughs) Yeah, well, actually, I won't go into that particular uh, question. But uh, apart from to say we were a little worse for the wear, but we, we actually, it was weird because I went home and I was so much worse for the wear that I um. I didn't remember having written it in the night when I got home. And then I'd, I'd even sent it sent it to Andy. And I looked at my text and thought, I've just sent him a whole parody of, uh, of Bohemian Rhapsody uh, in the voice of Theresa May. And um, and he really liked it. And then he recorded it. And it's out there, out there online as well. But um, but then we um, he performed it with me at the Barbican. Uh, and I was, I was commissioned by Sky Arts to, to write a new national anthem based on my feelings around Brexit. So I called it... A rational anthem for a national tantrum, and um, and kind of you know, uh, and then it was Noratorio, and and that was that was really good fun. But Andy's Andy's fantastic. I mean, he's um, he's a bit of a genius, and I obviously um, worked with him when he directed Mowgli and um, and Breathe as well. He's a brilliant director. Hmm. We will chat with Nitin a lot more about his album Immigrants and his music and all the politics around it later in the show, but first. The Home Secretary announces yet another overhaul of our asylum seeker rules. Sensible and much needed reform or just more immigrant bashing? The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has today announced a radical shake-up of asylum rules and a crackdown on people crossing the channel illegally, because that's what you need when you're fleeing war, rape and persecution to be shaken up and cracked down on. It seems that she has failed to learn the most practical lesson of the last year, emerging, gleaming, both from Brexit and the lockdown, that there is no way to lock others out that doesn't also lock you in. Mini, can you sum up the new proposals for us? Feel free to swear. 
<laughs> where do I even start? I, I'm, I will try and make it as simple as possible because what she has actually proposed is a massive and misdirected overhaul of the asylum system. So obviously no one wants people to risk their lives crossing the channel or spend years and years stuck in the system once they're in the UK. But to fix that, you need a system which starts from the premise that refugees should and might need to come to the UK. What Patel is trying to do is roll back the refugee convention by saying that the method of arrival into the UK will determine whether or not or not you have a legitimate asylum claim. Mm. She's trying to make it impossible to claim asylum if you've come through another country first. And as we're a fucking island, that would mean the majority of asylum seekers would be denied. So you can't apply until you're here and you can't get... If you get here and apply, then you'll be refused anyway. So on the margins, one of the possible results will be that someone fleeing genuine danger might be deported nevertheless because we don't like the way they fled danger. Exactly. So, you know, this system will not work for the majority of asylum seekers, and it particularly will not work for the people already stuck in Europe or in France or who do make it to Europe. And for those people, it will massively increase the reliance on people smugglers and traffickers because there will be absolutely no other way to get to the UK. Mm. It's actually a very, very dangerous proposal. And also there are real questions about whether or not it's legal. Yeah. So, okay, let's take this in in sort of blocks. First of all, I know we see and hear a lot more about it, but are asylum applications actually on the rise? No, absolutely not. The complete opposite. So asylum applications are actually currently at their lowest since 2002. But what has massively increased since the Tories came into power is the number of people waiting in the UK for a decision on their case. So actually, the only thing that is actually on the rise is the Home Office's incapability of handling immigration cases. Mm. Now, part of that is to do with the fact that the government has continually layered chaotic policy on top of chaotic policy. And when you do that, you make it really impossible to make clear and coherent decisions and to get people the support they need. I mean, there's currently around 40,000 asylum seekers in the UK who have been here for years. We see this at JTCWI all the time, five years, 10 years waiting for a decision. And they really do have valid or or if you want to call it so-called legitimate claims. And that whole time, They could have been living here with their friends and family. They could have been working. They could have been valued, important members of our communities. And actually, this plan will increase the number of people left in limbo because we haven't got anywhere to send them in this kind of boomerang 24-hour proposal that she's suggesting. And what I think is really important to remember is we've already seen Pretty Patel move towards a camp or barracks US-style model. Mm. And if this plan goes ahead, we can expect to see more camps like that on British soil. Okay, so next bit. Is it illegal to cross the channel in search of asylum? And is there any basis to the notion that a refugee has to apply in the first safe country they land? 
no, 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 no. Yeah. I literally cannot. No and no. No and no. It is absolutely legal to cross the channel and seek asylum. And also the majority of asylum seekers do claim asylum elsewhere. You know, it's such a tiny, tiny proportion of people who want or need to come to the UK. There is nothing in any international law that says you have to apply in the first safe country. I think where the confusion arises is actually through the Dublin Convention, which we are no longer part of. And what that convention said was that people could be returned to the first country that they were recorded in. Now, if you look at the history of that convention, it came out of a need to determine which EU country had responsibility for someone. So it came from uh, wanting to take responsibility. And there is actually a hierarchy of how EU countries make that decision. of that list is that someone has family somewhere else in the UK in the EU and therefore should be allowed to join them but the UK only ever participated in the returns aspect again this does not make it illegal to travel to a different country but it does allow for unfair returns and actually interestingly the government is now trying to convince the EU which we have just left that we should continue to take part in that system but there is absolutely no incentive from the EU to say yes and they're basing their entire proposal on these third country agreements. Mm. Naomi, precisely in this point, Professor Simon Asherwood wrote that this sort of proposal is a a sort of natural extension of the take-back control fallacy, (laughs) the notion that by having autonomy over your rules, you don't need others to play ball. I mean, that fails the instant it comes into contact with reality, doesn't it? Uh, Completely. I mean, you know, how how can you return asylum seekers unless you have a network of agreements with the places that you want them to go to? Unless, and I wouldn't put it past her, she's proposing dumping them out of a plane at 10,000 feet with a parachute strapped to their backs, if they're lucky. Oh, my goodness. Now, the, the, the Dublin Accord, of course, did allow the UK to do just that. Of course it did. Um, so... But we're no longer part of it because we're no longer part of the EU. So is this simply another in a long line of attempts to replicate the bits of the EU membership that we liked without, you know, actual membership? Uh, yes, because there's no choice. Um, you know, when it's rolling over trade deals with third countries, third-party countries outside of the EU that we previously had a trade deal with by virtue of our EU membership or this, uh, it, it is all about this kind of pound shop version. They're either exactly the same as what we had uh, or mm. actually not quite as good. And I fear with this, it, it you know, end up not being quite as good. And it takes time and it's inefficient. And, you know, it, it's just endlessly frustrating that we're having to now reinvent the wheel with it. But you're, you're totally right. Of course, the, the, the Dublin Accords did allow for exactly what she's proposing. And, this is absolute red meat for the worst kinds of, uh, you know, devoted libertarian type voters that they're worried about keeping on side. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely revolting. Yeah. So knitting on that, uh, is this just a, a sort of xenophobic dog whistle by the Conservatives to their base just ahead of a local election? I mean, is it simply a modern version of Michael Howard's, are you thinking what we're thinking? I think 100%. I mean, the the fact is that you had Priti Patel justifying, um, you know, her draconian laws or or her uh, proposals uh, by saying that she 
wanted to um, save these people from the evil traffickers and so on. But then at the same time, she's now saying that they will be indefinitely liable for removal at any time from from the UK. So clearly she doesn't care about them at all in any way. Um, mm. And so, so my whole point is this is all about trying to appease her kind of xenophobic nationalist support across the country. And I, I, I think that that's also, I mean, I had the impression that to, to actually apply for asylum, uh, that you had to be in the country that you wanted to claim asylum from. Yes, you're, you're absolutely allowed to basically choose where you want to apply for asylum. So I kind of think the idea of an illegal, uh, you know, I mean, the word illegal just seems to be constantly used to stigmatise rather than any, any informed way at all. And then you've got her clandestine, what was his name? Clandestine ch- channel commander. threat commander or something, <laughs> channel threat commander, I think it is. And it's like, it's yeah. just, it seems like it's all parody upon parody, but unfortunately this is reality. It's impossible to parody it. All right, but here's the difficult bit, okay? If this is intended as a dog whistle, is the righteous outrage of progressives like us its amplifier? Do you know what I mean? Every time I call Priti Patel heartless on social media, am I, in fact, boosting her credentials with the people for whom heartless is a desirable quality in a Home Secretary? The difficulty is that any kind of form of protest right now, as we all know, is becoming harder to protest in any way at all. So, you know, just literally by objecting to dehumanization and demonization of immigrants, which is a fundamental, I mean, you know, that's, uh, it should be prom- problematic for anyone with a conscience, mm. you, you know, just by voicing that. It, it, it's very difficult because, I mean, right now, if we wanted to take to the streets, now, now they're changing the laws so that we, face the possibility of 10 years in jail if we uh, make too much noise or we're too disruptive in, in in expressing our shock at what's going on. So it just feels like at every level we're being, it feels like a game of chess where we're constantly being pushed into the corner and unable to kind of really object in any way. So I don't know. It's, it's just very frustrating to watch all this. Mini, by claiming her aim is to create safe and legal routes for people to seek asylum in the UK. Is the government actually admitting that for decades there have been no such safe and legal routes? I mean, it's classically confused messaging from from the Home Office. And I think actually part of the reason that they're using that safe and legal routes language is because in the last few years, as uh, more people have become aware of what's happening in the channel, especially last summer, and people like me, other campaigners, other organisations were saying to the government, we need more safe and legal routes of entry. It was clearly having cut through with the public. And so the government has kind of taken that on board a little bit. You know, they they have admitted that there isn't anything, but they also claim that their existing routes work. So it's it's classically confused. But I think it's important to remember as well, you know, that this is a historic problem. It's been pointed out that these proposals today don't massively differ from proposals put forward by David Blunkett back in the early 2000s. Mm. I think the difference is, is that now Brexit has created an additional problem. So they've had to create a new narrative around safe and legal routes, because not only do they know that the Home Office is inadequate and failing asylum seekers on all counts, they now can't rely on returns to the EU because we don't have that agreement. So focusing this as part of their their global Britain strategy, which we all know is a shambles, while simultaneously using asylum seekers and migrants as a scapegoat and a distraction tactic for everything that goes wrong on their watch. 
in there, there's a deeper philosophical point, isn't there? Can you fairly reform any system if your focus is cutting numbers? So if you've already started from the outcome you want, can you look at a thing objectively and see and say, where does it work? You know, I'm thinking of the parallel with the welfare state, where it's it's been largely accepted that you can't reform welfare if your aim is to actually cut what you spend on it, because reforming it fairly and objectively might actually result in you paying slightly more money, but a better system. So in the same way, reforming the, you know, the asylum uh, rules fairly might actually result in more applications, but fewer queues, more humane treatment. If you start from the point of view that I want to cut the numbers, can that ever result in a in a, a clear-eyed reform? No, definitely not. And it also doesn't work for the Home Office. It hasn't worked for the Home Office ever. This was one of the key learnings from the Windrush scandal, which also broke because the government had put in place targets and numbers for how many people could be in the UK. And particularly on asylum, there is no reform which starts from we need to limit the number of people who come here because that simply is not how uh, refugee crises or asylum seekers' journeys work. And it's also not the spirit in which the UK signed up to the Refugee Convention after the atrocities of World War II. And importantly, you you do have to be compassionate, Mm. but you also have to be realistic. And I think that's the thing that strikes me the most about these proposals. You have to look at what actually happens to people when they leave their countries for whatever reason and how those journeys take place. You know, it's not as if asylum seekers plan for months on end that they're going to leave and that they're going to know every single available avenue to enter the UK. You know, what she's essentially proposing is that if you flee the Taliban and you don't fill out the online form while you're running away you're going to be in a two-tier system and you you can't rebuild your life in the uk i mean i'm laughing because it's gross it's grotesque but it's it's horrific naomi pretty patel refused repeatedly today in interviews to exclude the possibility of using places like the isle of man or gibraltar as processing centers now those territories have already ruled it out why is this standoff being confected other than the possibility that faced with the prospect of being sent to the Isle of Man, someone may decide not to free, flee a war zone. It, it, it may or may not act as some kind of parent. <laughs> Gibraltar isn't the greatest place in the world either. It's, I'm sure it's lovely for some people. I'm not a huge fan of it, not least because the monkeys stole all of our packed lunch. But uh, how, <laughs> how will this work when if they say no? I mean, Gibraltar has already has already joined Schengen. It's typical bombastic bullshit out of this government. Um, it, it's it's trying to drum up some vision of some kind of fucking Alcatraz where mm. you know people will be held in protest. It's it's designed oh. for that red meat voter base that we've just been talking about to sort of fixate on this uh, you know offshore prison where they can be processed and and sent back if they've been found to you know be fraudulent and then you know actually they're just economic migrants trying to make their way in or whatever effing nonsense they come up with this time so yeah it, it, it's not workable she also repeatedly emphasized that asylum seekers are mostly men who have left behind their women and children is the way she put it uh, you know i must get me some of those um, yeah. it's going to be a real man 
Now, earlier this year, the government voted against the Dubs Amendment. Yes. Uh, how can those two positions be reconciled? Well, they, of course they can't. Of course they can't. And obviously, you know, Lord Dubs himself, having been a child that, you know, fled persecution uh, and wanting to offer uh, safe passage for them. And this government, you know, voted against it, whipped against it, and yet now seem to be, you know, criticising asylum seekers for not bringing their women and children with them. You, it's it, it's just it's just terrific. I mean, that you can't reconcile them. It, it's same answer to the previous question. It's just it's more and more and more nonsense. Yes, they're trolling and, us. They're trolling us. It is. It's all part of whipping up their part in the culture war. And and you know even. Even, even the language around it that gets used. And I often like to talk about, you know, seekers of sanctuary to try and help people envisage what mm. these people are actually trying. They're trying to seek safety. They're trying to seek sanctuary from all of these, you know, horrendous situations that are happening to them. In much the same way as... Uh, global issues have to be tackled multilaterally you know this is exactly the same thing because if we don't they ultimately hurt all of us no one is safe until everyone is safe is the mantra that we're being told um quite rightly by the WHO around vaccines but the same is going to be true of climate change if you think mass migration is a problem now my god just wait until the global south heats up to uh, even even you know more terrifying levels than we're seeing at the moment and the flood and famine that come come with that and this environment that we're creating isn't just hostile i mean it's it's just downright disgusting uh, and to want to go out and be some kind of you know world leader standard bearer with global britain for the rule of law and you know being good citizens i mean it's just it's just a nonsense. Nitin, other deeper political reasons do you think for maintaining this hierarchy of deserving of help versus undeserving of help? We see it weaved through almost every government policy at the moment. Well, I think it, it's kind of very nicely. Well, there's there's a lot of ways in which this has been summed up in um, during the last uh, year, but I think none so succinctly as when uh, Boris Johnson talked about greed being a good thing. I mean, the idea that, um, and, and this is the problem really, because ultimately this government has no integrity whatsoever. I mean, they're a corrupt government. They they distract us constantly by using archaic kind of symbols of nationalism. You know, the, we had James Wilde the other day um, dressing down Tim Davey for not having mm. enough uh, Union Jacks in the, in the um, annual report, which was just ludicrous. I mean, it literally... It's just laughable to watch if it wasn't so painful and real. You know, they're, they're trying to justify the economic disparity that, you know, that they, they want to just make even bigger and, and increase all the time. And the way in which they do that is by appeasing to the worst aspects of human nature. And and so they've done that extremely effectively, sadly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the thing. Every time, you know, by having scapegoats, I mean, people like Noam Chomsky talk about this, by having scapegoats that you can justify almost anything at all. What message do you think initiatives like that quietly send to immigrants already settled in this country and the children of immigrants already in this country? During the Brexit campaign, the focus on ending freedom of movement felt like a personal snub to me, you know, who used freedom of movement to settle here, like the state in a way regretted inviting me in back then. Do you think immigrants will feel the same thing when, you know, is there a sort of ripple effect to the hostile environment? Absolutely. I mean, well, right now, if you think about 
isolation upon isolation. I mean, Brexit was about isolating the country even more. And, and uh, then we were isolated in, you know, by lockdown and by COVID. And it's kind of, it, in a way, it's kind of allowed this government to, to bring in more uh, laws that really, I mean, there's no one to check them with what they're doing. This is the thing that shocks me all the time is that Boris Johnson, with the whole proroguing argument, for example, he he undermined the, the judiciary in this country. And, and um, you know, the traditional ways in which the government is checked and balanced mm. by the judiciary, um, that, that seems to have gone out the window because no one seems to have any power, you know, or the opposition, no one seems to have any power to challenge what is overtly unfair, and they can almost say any, anything. I mean, the fact that you can have a prime minister stand up and be proud of greed and actually proclaim that to everyone, that really says everything about how, how currently unassailable they are. And that's absolutely terrifying to me. Our guest this week is award-winning composer Nitting Sony. Uh, whose new album, Immigrants, is out now. Among many collaborators, it features Indian and English Kawali singers, a British-Jamaican cellist, an Egyptian-British singer, a Canadian rapper, and a German-born violinist, to name but a few. Let's just say that I wouldn't want to be the person that has to list this on Discogs. GQ India described him as creating borderless music in this age of unreason. Nitin, did you set out to make a record that would stand up for immigrants and immigration? Yes, I did. I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to have a celebration of immigrants and the voices of immigrants on an album. And um, this was intended as the follow-up, as you, as you mentioned before, to my 1999 album, Beyond Skin, mm. particularly over the last few years. I mean, the, as I've mentioned before, the, the consistent um, attacks on immigrants and um, on people on the basis of xenophobia has really served to dehumanise so many people and to make people feel uh, afraid there's so much fear of being uh, attacked on the basis of your identity if you are from an immigrant heritage mm -hmm. or background and i think that's just increased more and more i mean we saw after brexit itself a spike in in race hate crimes very little is being done to to change that in fact it just feels like it's getting worse all the time i mean if you think back to the race relations amendment act and um, uh, which followed in the wake of the Stephen Lawrence affair and, um, and McPherson report, you know, it felt like something was actually being mm. done to change that uh, kind of endemic racism that was so clear to, to everyone. And yet it seems that, I mean, particularly since I think, and, and I, would, I would actually cite Nigel Farage as an incredible provocateur with, with all of this. And he, you know, he appeared incredibly on Question Time. I think it was 32 times or around that leading up to the um, referendum. He appeared more than the furniture. Unbelievable, yeah. And I, I think, you know, this was a thing. You, there, there was a constant platforming of someone whose views were absolutely vile and he was a proven liar. You know, I think that, that, that we are now in the, situation, in the situation we're in because of the fact that we've been allowing people to, to constantly you know, gaslight us into believing, into believing that racism is just part of the national psyche, which it shouldn't be. On this idea of allowing them mm. to do this, popular music is possibly where most people encounter different cultural influences. I say possibly because food might be a close contender. 
Do you think do you think musicians have done enough to make the case against Britain's increasing introversion? You know, it's it's really interesting because I've I've always said I'm not political. I I don't want to. I I never intended to be uh, to be politically outspoken. But I do believe, as you mentioned before, that every human being is born of equal value. And so, when the world seems so politicized by the fact that, because um, I think that's the default position, but by the fact that governments and particularly our government or or Trump or whoever you know seem very against that idea or, or question or constantly make us think that that's not that's not right or that inequity mm. is a problem with that or even the other day when um, I think with the BBC when David Harewood for example had a, 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 a documentary where he was expressing how there was an unfair imbalance in in relation to race you know uh, uh, over covid i don't know how many people it was but so many people wrote into the bbc to say he was racist for saying that so when it gets to the point where actually pointing out racism is it, you're accused of racism for doing that then it just gets to a point where you feel an obligation as an artist to say something 60s music is full of anthems against war and for civil rights. It's sort of central to that transformation. Where are the pro-immigration and anti-populism songs of today? And that's that's something I, I that does confuse me, I have to admit. I, I don't really understand that. For me, you know, I, I 100% agree with you. But then, you see, what, what I don't want to do is kind of I, I never want to put out a didactic album or an album that kind of tells people, you know, you know, to, or to create a polemic. I, I wanted to make an album that was a celebration of, of different voices and of, and of inclusion and diversity and, and to, to really give more power to or, or to give a platform to the global majority of people who feel like they're constantly being um, discriminated against. Yeah. yeah. I mean, your music has always been very multicultural. Do you think Britain has become less friendly to the concept of diversity in the Brexit years. And was Brexit a cause of that or the effect of that change or both? Is it sort of- I think both. I mean, I think Brexit had a, sim- uh, had a symbiotic relationship with prejudice and, and bigotry. Um, yeah, I, I pointed this out in 2014 in, in this very studio that I'm talking from right now to Channel 4 News when they came over. And I, I, I said at the time, you know, that, that I was really frightened of what was going to happen with UKIP being given so much of a platform. And I do feel that the referendum result was direct, directly came from that, uh, as well as all the stuff that happened with Cambridge Analytica and, you know, everything that we know now in retrospect. But I, I do feel it's been there for a very long time. You know, I wouldn't have come up with the album Beyond Skin in the first place if it wasn't there then. And then, of course, with Rock Against Racism in the 70s, I was chatting to Tom Robinson the other day and remembering 1976 with, you know, Rock Against Racism with the National Front. It's always been there. The problem is, you know, I think that Brexit has given permission or it feels to a lot of these nationalists and bigots and racists that they now feel that they've been given permission to come out of the woodwork and say what they want and do what they want. And and of course, the atmosphere is very different when a thing exists, but you feel you're moving in the right direction. And when that same thing exists and you think you're moving in the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, your album, uh, Immigrants, is laced with samples of people talking that really jumped out at me. Everything from outright racist abuse to angry meetings to migrants telling their own stories to mothers talking to their children. 
did you curate the samples to fit the pieces or did that little snippet of dialogue give rise to the music it was it was again uh, both kind of fed each other or cross fertilized each other i mean there was um you know during the course of this and i, I had some help from um, from the broadcaster nikki Betty, who who had um access to some archive footage that i didn't have access to so that was really helpful so we you know we talked that through and she was really helpful in getting me the the stuff i was looking for mm. but at the same time so sometimes i would put that at the beginning of tracks as i was writing them and then sometimes i'd put those on afterwards but um it was a very similar process to beyond skin where i included you know i mean the album beyond skin begins with uh, the indian prime minister of that time vajpai actually talking about testing through nuclear bombs in the pokhran range and um so i kind of i've i've always had you know well with those two albums with immigrants this new one and beyond skin i definitely had that kind of idea of of uh, bringing in news footage mm. and um and, and so on in the past you've spoken about your anger at your younger self in a way for mm-hmm. not standing up against the racism you faced mm-hmm. is is immigrants part of the process of making peace with your younger self i think i i think i did that largely with beyond skin actually mm. I, i think that was probably the most cathartic album i ever made i think this one was more about looking at uh, giving more of a platform to or, or collaborating with people whose voices I respected and who had similar or kind of complementary thoughts about what had happened around the dehumanization of immigrants over the last few years. And, um, and I think it's been interesting because, you know, we are constantly being pushed into a justification of immigrants all the time of, of, of who they are, you know, whether it's on an economic basis I, I recognize I recognize that completely. Yeah, at, at some point, I sort of gave up on saying how many years I've been in this country and how I've always paid my taxes. But it, you you feel you have to, you know. But the problem with that, as Maya Goodfellow pointed out, she you know the academic she she actually said that you know that um, that we're constantly made to have to justify ourselves on economic grounds, which we can because actually, where as UCL um, a study from UCL pointed out that we're in at something like a twenty billion pound net benefit from immigrants you know but um but at the same time why should we talk about economic justification what about all of the cultural um impact and and what about looking at the country as a dynamic country i mean there we were in 2012 with the cultural olympiad and the and the opening ceremony celebrating multiculturalism looking at you know and also celebrating the nhs and 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 here now we are in 2021 where all this government wants us to celebrate is greed mm. That that would make quite a different opening ceremony. It? Well, it would. I mean, you know, the thing is, though, if you think about that uh, in terms of greed, I mean, you know, AstraZeneca were given two billion uh, pounds to to develop um, the the vaccine, and on top of that, um, you know, the NHS. I mean, when you talk about greed saving lives, the NHS saved lives, not not greed. Yes. So, I mean, it's quite shocking how much this government gets away with saying. It's it is outrageous, actually. The star pupil in you know the thing that made the difference to the vaccination program was the NHS, which is the opposite of the concept of greed. Exactly. Um, now, immigrants, despite its can I call it episodic its nature, it's sort of little interludes and movements, mm-hmm. larger things. It's sort of punctuated by a multitude of styles from. Indian classical music to fado, from flamenco to kawali, and 
the album to me had a real narrative arc to it. It felt almost like a soundtrack to an unseen movie. How mm-hmm. do you harness so many sources under one intent? Well, I guess um, part of all this is that I am a film composer, so I, I work a lot with film and um, you know I'm constantly doing that. So in that respect, I, I'm always thinking cinematically and I always have done. So, I mean, I work a lot with dance and uh, you know choreographers like Akram Khan and, um, and, and I have worked a great deal with film so, and theatre as well. So it's kind of... It's part of my DNA in the way that I write music is that I, I have a cinematic approach to things. But um, but I guess because I grew up playing a, a whole load of different types of instrument and also uh, ty- uh, styles of music and, and loving a lot of different styles of music, that really helped to inform the way in which I I kind of think about um, think about music generally. And and um, you know so I, I have a. I have a wide palette and, and I'm very lucky in that I had an upbringing that allowed me to, to get into all kinds of different styles. Nissen, your live performances, uh, like the, the one at the Royal Albert Hall, feature dozens of musicians from all over the world. I mean, look, post-Brexit, we've heard all about the difficulties of touring visas for musicians, but do you have a sense of how difficult it's going to be to in- assemble that kind of ensemble? It's a tricky time because obviously, you know, um, COVID actually is also making us, uh, putting us in a position where it's not actually that crazy to close the borders. But in the long term, you know, I'd I'd hope that that would really shift back to being much more open to to other countries and thinking of, of ourselves as part of as part of the world rather than just being isolationist. But it is going to be difficult. I mean, you know, for example, if I want to work in other parts of Europe or if I want to bring in musicians from other parts of Europe, that's increasingly uh, difficult. There is quite a laborious visa procedure from just about any country that I think will will still be there when all of these uh, restrictions are lifted due to COVID. So, I mean, this is this is a problem is, is to, to look at these reforms that constantly are coming in all the time and particularly um you know i mean if we look at um the fact that you know oliver dowden and uh, the dcms has been yeah. um, challenged uh, over over what they're doing um you know regarding sponsorship uh, certificates for for musicians that come from europe you have to kind of look at this in the, and think well, what is what is the agenda here you know and and it's very clear you know caroline dinich actually said last year that they had an ideological obligation to kind of um, to really kind of discourage anyone coming over from from europe and so that as as you rightly pointed out alex that that locks us in as well so it's mm-hmm. kind of you know and this is the problem because creative people want to be able to exchange ideas i mean cultures benefit from from being dynamic and open mm. and and kind of having an influx of new ways of thinking well um, and, and speaking of immigrants i'd like to just um touch on the royal family if you don't mind um <laughs> regular, regular listeners of the show will know that i am absolutely not uh, a monarchist and, and my colleague ian dunn is but nitin you declined an OBE in 2007 and then accepted later a cbe after the passing of your father who had had encouraged you as i understand it to take the OBE originally how do you feel about those decisions now, maybe particularly in the light of the current scrutiny the royals are facing? 
Yeah, I don't I don't think of that as anything to do with the royal family. What I think of is that in terms of me taking the CBE eventually, I mean, I took it literally for my dad because it, it, the offer arrived on his birthday and he passed away in 2013, as you rightly pointed out. He had been sad. But, and, and I asked him why, because I said, I don't want the word empire after my name. And he said... Um, uh, I said it makes me feel like Darth Vader, and he said, um, "He said, well, the thing is that it's a measure of how far we've come as immigrants. That we're, that it's a feeling of being accepted in this country." And I said, "Well, I kind of get that, but I mean, you know, so so when he kind of did that, I get, I guess, I mean, when he said that, then and it came on his birthday, it did. I did feel quite moved by it, you know, and, and obviously mm. it was an emotional reaction. Now the thing is, as I've said many times, I mean, in, in France." They call you a knight of arts and letters. Here we have to have, you know, I mean, and as I've pointed out, that it's quite hilarious. What you know, my official title is commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire, <laughs> which I find funny because it's a combination of Bill and Ted and uh, Darth Vader. Um, so it's kind of, um, yeah, from that point of view, I don't really relate to it as anything to do with the royal family. I kind of yeah. think of it as, well, somebody must have put me up for that. Somebody somewhere must have thought uh, they wanted to acknowledge the work that I'd done. And I think as a person, you know, of the global majority, I don't feel an obligation to have to decline things. You know, um, other people don't. And and so I kind of don't want to feel that I have to apologise for that. because well, that's on the best of both worlds because you've declined it and, and got it. You know, well, there you go. <laughs> Minnie, would you like to ask one? Yes, Nitin, you were nominated for the Mercury Prize in 2000 for Beyond Skin. And last year, both they and the Brit Awards changed their rules to accommodate Rina Sawayama, who was born in Japan, but has has lived most of her life here and has one of the most incredible albums. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think the music industry in the UK has a race problem? Oh, definitely. God, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you look across, um, you, you look across radio, you look across, I mean, for example, I, I mean, I could talk about that on many different levels. A few years ago, I talked about that in relation to com- composers uh, for film, uh, composers for the whole idea that there is, I mean, there's an Asian network, for example, and the Asian network doesn't have the same resources, of course, as Radio 1 or Radio 2. So if it was kind of, you know, so therefore it becomes cultural apartheid on the radio, of course it does, because that means that anyone who's Asian is kind of now played on the Asian network yeah. um, as, as, as opposed to being on Radio 1 or Radio 2, which is what should happen. And, and I feel that same way about DJs. There should be, there should just be an automatic presence of um, of a wide demographic, um, you know, embracing pluralism and not just about um, or, or an inclusion rather than just simply being about kind of having a station that exists purely on the basis of geographical boundaries, which which don't don't mean anything. You know, it's like the word Asian itself. I mean, that's so huge. And, and to actually and it, it's not representative of what the Asian network is anyway. So it's kind of I kind of find it all um, bizarre and very much about reinforcing kind of um, prejudices and, and ignorance rather than actually benefiting artists and and artists really themselves very rarely want to be categorized i mean when you make art when you make music you're not thinking oh i'm going to make this on the basis that i'm asian or have an asian heritage (laughs) i I, you know you make music because you feel something because you're emotional because there's something that you have to say and so you know it comes from a real place it's not come you know it's not about fitting into contrived labels and so that's the sad thing about it always that constantly artists are made to feel that they have to do that Thank you. 
finally this week, we discuss our surprising musical tastes. Not that any musical taste should be judged, chacun a son goût. But I know that, considering my passion for opera and record collections, some of my friends are rather taken aback when they see me enthusiastically jumping around to the Wenger boys. (laughs) (laughs) Does Naomi Smith have a secret penchant for Scandinavian sludge metal? Does Minnie Rauman collect tapes of Mongolian throat singing? And does Nitin's ecumenical taste have recesses so dark and out there they must remain private? Minnie? I mean, I think I think I have a quite varied taste in music. There is, I have a niche that people are always surprised by, and I, I don't know whether that is because I'm just small and brown, and it doesn't feel like it fits in. But, <laughs> I mean, I don't really know how to describe it, but it's basically anything that was on Kerrang in the 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like, you know, I mean, one of my favourite albums is Linkin Park's Hybrid Theory. And like, I have a real soft spot for bands like Elastica and Garbage. And people are always just like, what? That doesn't really make any sense. But I I think it fits perfectly with my personality. Very good. How about you, Naomi? So... I'm a geek and a nerd about data and polling and all of that sort of stuff, but I'm really very vanilla in almost every other aspect of my life and and sort of don't have sort of strange little, you know, fetishes and and interests and hobbies and things like that. So these sorts of questions that we often get asked on the show, I always find I really struggle with (laughs) an answer that's that's designed to to give the the scripter what they're looking for. Um, I guess something that, lots of listeners won't know about me is that I play the double bass uh, and I was in my national youth orchestra and so uh, yeah I mean I I obviously have a you know a a huge interest in lots of classical music and listen to lots of that still and I scrape away on my bass occasionally as well although I am an absolute shadow of my former self in terms of my ability to play Um, so that I guess is a bit interesting and out there not many people play the double bass anyway I guess I guess for Uh, you we could extend it to movies Jamie since I happen to know that you're a (laughs) massive horror fan and I'm talking real torture porn (laughs) (laughs) that's not entirely true I'm not really into dystopian post-apocalyptic genre and anything with zombies that move fast or very good yeah How about you, Nitin? Is there something, given how all-encompassing you are in your work, is there something that would surprise even your most faithful devotee? It's kind of weird because I kind of, I I pride myself on the fact that I kind of listen to a hell of a lot of different styles of music. So I kind of think um, that as a film composer, it's been really useful to kind of get into lots of different types of music from around the world. I love uh, playing, you know, a, a lot of styles from different places. Um, and obviously, um, you know, I've, I've worked a lot with London Symphony Orchestra, so I've, I've, I love classical music. I grew up as a classical pianist mm. first. But um, I also was uh, <laughs> in my teens in a heavy rock band playing Van Halen uh, covers and uh, and doing uh, doing tracks like Eruption and stuff like that. Also, <laughs> as, well as, uh, as well as I used to play a lot of country music. So I've got a banjo, so sometimes I play, you know, what, having watched Deliverance, I remember kind of thinking I need to be able to play that. Um, so there, there are lots of little things. Like I that beg that I you for photos. <laughs> I beg you for photos of that period of your life. I Only would. if we get a video, a TikTok of you doing Venga Boys dancing. I like that. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, uh, what do you mean, though, Alex? You, you say that you want a picture of me with a straw in my mouth with a yeah. I went to I went a photo of you. I went a photo of you in a hard rock band. Oh, I see. All right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got a few of those. <laughs> and that's the show. Thank you to Minnie. Thanks, everyone. Naomi. Thank Thanks very much. And our guest, Nitin. Cheers. Immigrant is out now to stream and download, or you can get it as a double LP from Piccadilly Records, if, like me, you understand anything about anything. (laughs) This week on the Extra Bit, exclusively for patrons, we are opening the digital mailbag. That sounded strangely dirty. In But Your Emails, you'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and our thanks to our latest Patreon backers. It's thanks from me to Samuel, David Williams, Carol Worthington, Johanna Roberts and Alistair Rennie. And a big shout out from me to Steve Murphy, Joseph Borg, Jay, Maria Johnson and David Alsop. And finally, virtual hugs from me to Max Pert, Paul Henderson, James Miller, Rachel Muirs and Neil Singleton. Catch us next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Alexandreu with Naomi Smith and Minnie Raman. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit for patrons. In but your emails, we choose a question from our backers, so don't forget you can submit yours starting from just £2 a month. This week, Mike Stafford asks, if we take as read that Johnson's government is authoritarian and will continue to drag the country into illiberalism, what do the panel think it will use that illiberalism for? We're used to seeing illiberal regimes have an intellectual purpose to them, whether it be persecuting minority groups, radical redistribution of wealth, or mere militarism. Given that the Johnson regime has little ideological heft to it, how do you assume the next few years to shake out in terms of purpose? Will we see a cause present itself, or will Johnson pursue a more Putinesque kleptocracy? Naomi? Ooh, uh, good and big question. Um, yes, but I, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's very good. I think this government's illiberalism probably manifests as libertarianism rather than authoritarianism because libertarianism is not liberalism. Let me be very, very clear on that. And I'm sure uh, our, our colleague Ian Dunt would be too. Um, if we think about what is liberalism and why do we, people like me, like liberalism? And for me, it's all about that dissipation of power down to the lowest level that it can get to. All power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, all, all that kind of stuff. And th- we've we've got a, a government with an enormous majority that is railroading things through with very little parliamentary scrutiny, if any at all, on some things, least of all Brexit, now that they've wound up the Hillary Benn committee. 
And the libertarian flank seems to be driving a huge amount of the agenda at the moment. Mm. Now, they are coming for our electoral system. You will have seen that they have now tried to uh, change the voting systems of the mayors uh, to first past the post, you know, one of the one of the few elections where we didn't have to have this winner-takes-all, ridiculous, uh, regressive approach. That was a taste of this week's extra bit. Patreon people get a lovely extended 12-inch disco mix of Oh God, What Now? every week. So why not join them? Whoever said no to 12 inches? Search Patreon Oh God, What Now? podcast, sign up, and you will get the show early, longer, and without ads, plus our splendid merchandise too and free access to our live Zooms. Exciting news on the next one coming soon. We'll see you next week.